0: This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with former GB judo player Tom Reed. The former Commonwealth silver medalist discusses his time as an athlete as well as his transition into coaching with the University of Bath and his philosophies around giving athletes ownership of their own development. I hope you enjoy. <laughs>
1: Tom, how are things? Oh, very good, thanks, Mike. Good, yeah. happy, very happy to be here in this very funky little office. I like it.
0: <laughs> well, first of all, I appreciate you doing this. Um, obviously, taking a bit of time out of your your Monday morning and stuff. I guess first thing is kind of newish into the role here at the University yeah. of Bath. Do so you just want to explain to people kind of what you're doing and how you've come sure. into that and how it is?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, um, I, I was, I've been, I've been here at the University of Bath as an athlete actually for a long time. So I started training here when I was 15, so I was at 2001, Um, just coming as a judo athlete, just in case listeners don't know. Um, So yeah, coming here as a judo athlete, eventually moved here, left school when I was 17 to do my A-levels in Bath, moved in with a host family and went full time as an athlete. Uh, So I trained here then for the next 13 years. Um, So finished competing when I was 30. I didn't quite make the Rio Olympics. That was the end of my competitive career and then went out for three years at uh, Abu Dhabi. So my wife was out there as a nurse. So kind of my whole competitive career, I guess she'd followed me around or sort of put things on hold for, for my career. And that was my chance to kind of, I guess, repay that. So I went out there for three years and then came back uh, January 2017 um, and got a role here as assistant coach for judo. So basically working on the same program that I was an athlete on. So my coach uh, was Jürgen Klinger. He was here for 14 years. Um, he's just recently retired from, from his time in team Bath to move back to Germany um, so Adam Hall, another one of the athletes the same from the same generation as me, has kind of become the new Jürgen and then I've became the new Adam if you like. So Adam was the assistant coach to Jürgen and I'm now the assistant coach and um, so working with the full-time judo program here and um, we've got about 30 athletes um, univ- mostly university students but some that have stayed beyond their university. Um, a mixture of athletes kind of training We've got some preparing for the Olympic Games right now. Um, other athletes much more on the development end of the scale, kind of coming through, trying to get to national level. Um, so yeah, on a day-to-day basis, that I'm working with those guys here. And then I'm kind of doing like support roles and bits and pieces with the England Under-18s program. Um, just got one trip coming up with the GB Under-21s program as well. So this is my day-to-day, but then other bits and pieces around that.
0: And so how did you find the transition from, obviously, rolling and being a judo
1: player and stuff to then kind of taking a backwards if you like and being a coach
0: and all that type of stuff, how did you find
1: that? I think I I really enjoy it, to be honest. I think I was one of those players who probably you would have said there's a good chance this person will become a coach. I think even as an athlete I was always inclined towards that a little bit. Um, Just my mentality on the mat in terms of I enjoyed kind of instructing and helping others and that side of the sport. And I think that's quite hard to balance if you're that way inclined as an athlete because you have to be quite focused. Um, but as soon as I finished competing, I kind of, it was a natural progression for me. It's what I wanted to do. So even when I was still competing and t- from about, I would say halfway through 2015, um, so the last year of my career, I started training a couple of days a week as a, well, as a player coach in Cardiff. Um, so I was still based in Bath primarily, but then I would go there a couple of days a week to train, but also to help coach. And that was kind of the start of my coaching journey, I guess, at that level. Um, I've done bits and pieces with kids, judo and stuff before um, and then that was kind of what I planned to do. So I was really excited when I, obviously when I finished my career, there's the, the struggles around that. But I was really excited to get into coaching and then, but because of the situation with my wife, being in another country, that kind of, I guess, took me away from that. It was always what I planned to do, but I had to step step away from that a little bit. And when I went to Abu Dhabi, I did bits and pieces, but the whole, you know, the, the judo system there is just not as developed as it is here. Um, so the whole time I was there, you know, although I had a good time, I was I was missing coaching. So I was eager to get back to it. And I think in the end, it's turned out to be quite a good thing that I had that break because um, I've come back here, you know, three years later, there's probably four or five athletes that were, that were training at the same time as me, but the vast majority of them are new faces. So the people that i'm coaching now they don't really see me as an athlete they see me just as a coach most of them the ones that still see me as an athlete a little bit that's probably the ones that are a little bit more challenging to work with and um, just that how to manage that relationship and where you draw the line between coach and friend and teammate and that kind of thing um, but on the whole it's been really good and, the, and those players that i mentioned that i was teammates with have been really good as well really supportive so i'm sure i will face some challenging situations but on the whole it's been really good and um, I think coming back to, to a judo environment after three years away from it has probably brought up a few memories of being an athlete that probably I haven't resolved fully yet so there's been a few I guess unanticipated struggles around that um, but I think it's to be expected really I think you- you never fully retire from your comp- career as a competitor in terms of your mentality um, and i think still being in judo and allowing me to refocus that energy as a coach is is quite positive in that way um, so yeah it's been it's been really good really enjoying it so far um, yeah like compared to working in a non-sporting environment and sort of going to it which felt like work this to me doesn't really feel like a job um, there's a lot more to it than i anticipated i'm, I'm spending a lot more time here but I love I love doing it, so really really enjoying it.
0: Have you got any examples of that kind of struggle from?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I went to um, I went to Paris recently. So Paris Grand Slam is one of the biggest uh, judo tournaments in Canada. It's like the Wimbledon of judo. So it's not it's not the World Championships or the Olympic Games, but it's just got that prestige and that sort of history of, of being such a big big tournament. And as a player, I fought there in two thousand eight. So 22 which is quite young to compete there for your first time so but then I never actually ended up competing there again so my career was kind of on this good upward trajectory and then didn't continue at the same pace I guess I I was still on the circuit and doing well but not what never got to where I thought I would get to so I think going back to Paris and seeing it um, I wasn't coaching I was just a spectator but it did bring back a few memories of that and kind of just just makes you question a few things and did I make mistakes and could I have done things better and you know what and just why didn't I get to where I wanted to be to um, why didn't I achieve what I, what I thought I would um, and I think some of those questions you can try to answer but some you just you, some are difficult to answer you just for whatever reason that wasn't your destiny you weren't quite good enough the stars weren't aligned um, so some of those things you can't really work through and find an answer to um, so just bringing up some of those questions again, I guess, um, which I hadn't really thought about for a couple of years, just because I've been, I've been in a different environment with different things going on, and just not, yeah, just not not thought about those things. Um, so yeah, I kind of went through about a day and a half of daydreaming about making a comeback and uh, could I still do it and all this sort of stuff, and then you realize actually, like, it's not number one, you probably couldn't do it, but number two, it's not actually what you want to do anymore. You think you think there's a part of you, maybe there's a part of you that still wants to do it actually I'm I'm actually really happy doing what I'm doing and I feel like this is the right thing for me um, but you still do that you do get inclined to have those little daydreams and think about it um, and I guess it just brought back a few of those, those those memories and uh, I don't know if regrets is the right word but just what might have been um, so yeah and I'm sure there'll be other times when I have the same thing um, but it's important I guess to just just deal with those things and yeah speak to people and all that kind of stuff so I
0: guess that's a positive of kind of you going from being an athlete to then going into coach, you can kind of relay those experiences to the, to the athletes that are here now or the ones that might be looking to move away from judo and all that type of stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's the percentage of people that get to where they, that even if they do achieve great things, I think everybody always wants more. So everybody probably finishes with some, some sense of, you know not achieving quite what they wanted and also on the journey so there'll be athletes that are you know 18 19 20 that we're working with who want you know they're going to have tournaments they're going to have bad days um, and I think the fact you as a coach from your experience as an athlete you can you know it's good if you can relate to that um, doesn't mean I have the answers um, and I can help them and make it click my fingers and make it better but I know how they're feeling so we can have a conversation and, and you know relate to each other on that in that, in that way um, yeah it's I'm, I'm sure it, interesting actually again not just speaking to the players here but speaking to my my ex-teammates about it as well and sort of opening open, open up that conversation a little bit and, and there's lots of them out there that feel have the same sort of feelings as me and I think you you just don't talk about it but um, yeah like going there and, and, and having that come back kind of led me to then speak to more people and yeah everyone's sort of going through similar things i guess um so yeah it does help as a coach i think yeah as well to be able to have those conversations and just let the athletes know that you're there and you you know you're there to listen and speak to them whatever whatever things they're going through in their judo in their life all that kind of stuff so also you mentioned previously you spent quite a lot of your
0: career kind of around bath and, and whatnot I guess the, the first question is how did you get into judo in the first place what kind of drew you towards the sport
1: Yeah um so I started judo when I was 8 um the reason being um I was kind of dragged there because my brother wanted to do it so I wasn't I didn't really know what judo was I wasn't particularly interested in doing it but the reason there was a, there's a bit of a family link um my uncle was a like a really good judo player as well um, so he was like a bit of a, a young talent if you like he was a European medalist and fifth place in the Junior World Championships, but he never he didn't continue with his judo career much beyond juniors, um, so it wasn't a crossover where he was doing it and I and I was old enough to know that he was doing it, but it was this thing that had happened in our family in the past. If you know what I mean, we we knew that he would, had been this good judo player, um, so I think with my brother being a little bit older than me, he knew a bit more about it, and that probably drew him to do it to, to try it. So. He went to the same judo club that my uncle started at, um, and I was basically forced to go with him almost because you know brothers probably a lot of energy. I know there was there was three there's three of us, the three boys. I know for a fact we were a nightmare. <laughs> <Yeah. at home. laughs> so you know typical boys like fighting all the time and like causing mayhem at home. So I think that was probably part of it as well. It's getting us to go somewhere we where we were allowed to fight yeah. we we're allowed to kind of get that out of our systems. So I was in, I was strongly encouraged to go with my brother um, and I, I remember not necessarily liking it at first because it's quite a scary thing to go to Um, you know it's physical, there's people throwing each other around on the floor and all sorts of stuff going on um, but I sort of stuck at it because I guess I was pushed a little bit to stick at it um, but then quite soon found that for me I like the discipline side of it as a kid I kind of bought into that side of it I like I like that aspect um, and I liked eventually like the competitive side of it as well so the club I went to which is uh, Devices Judo Club they would do every Friday they would do kind of uh, within the club like a competition so you'd fight people it was like a league and you'd fight people on that league like the lad- challenge ladders we called it so you could challenge the person above you and get, get to the top of the ladder um, and once you start getting competitive like that and seeing that at the end of the year whoever's top gets a medal that was pretty cool and um, so yeah I started because of my brother probably love the discipline side of it um, and then eventually yeah like the competitive side and the fact I got to fight my brother as well um, mm-hmm. that was Devizes Judo Club was my first club um, at eight and I stayed there till I was still training there on and off when I was 17 um, so quite quite unusual really that you go to one club as a, a really little kid and that is your club for such a long time um, I was just I think looking back I was extremely lucky um, that my parents took me to that club because there's a lot of clubs out there there's different levels different experiences i could have had as um the first time going to judo but luckily i was in a, a really good club environment with good coaches and you know good parents and good teammates and uh, yeah just it, it kept me in the sport it was i ended up doing it hopefully for the rest of my life and i'm a coach now and you know it's all started there um, yeah.
0: in in judo like the discipline and kind of respect side of it's quite an integral part of the yeah. sport um, how do they drip feed that into you at that younger, age, younger ages? Because obviously I imagine it must be quite hard to get yeah, a seven-year-old yeah. or eight-year-old yeah, yeah. to be respectful. and.
1: Yeah, Good question. And it, I don't know if they do drip feed it in, but I think from my own experiences trying to coach kids, there is different situations where you might need to. So I was in a club environment, so it was really well established. Um, those kind of social expectations and, and behaviours are... Everyone's doing them already um, because the club's been around for generations. So it's always sort of led on to the next generation. And we chatted a little bit more uh, before we came on air about kind of the players start kind of policing it, if you like, and and making sure those things happen. So you very quickly walk in as a kid, even, and you're very perceptive to, okay, this is the way things are done here. And you don't, I I don't remember ever needing to be told to to behave in a certain way or bow when I got on the mat or, you know shake hands before and after fights and things like that I just it was everyone was doing it and they're your peers so you, you did the same thing but I have subsequently coached um, in a school environment where it's different so um, you know you have typical model is you have your school clubs so that's where kids start judo um, and then you try to bring the ones that are more either talented or just keen into the club environment so that's not the same you don't have that same sort of set expectations in the school, you're trying to build it from scratch and it is, it is much more challenging. Um, but the big one we st- is I guess we start the session as we mean to go on. So the thing about judo it's all about respect for your environment, respect for your uh, teammates and kind of respect for yourself. So simple thing when we step onto the mat we bow and um, before we start a session we will line up and we, we kneel up which is a little bit uncomfortable but it sort of gets everyone's attention and then we bow to start the session. Um, so I think that's a big one that it just sort of sets the tone for, as you mean to go on for the class and um, start at the bow until everybody's lined up quietly everybody's paying attention and i think that sets the tone a little bit um but we still have challenges definitely i found in the, the club in, in, in the school environment you know just different different mentality of kids i think um the club is very much kind of you walk in the door everyone's everyone's uh bang when they walk in bang when they get on the mat you know, listening to their coaches, not answering back, uh, treating each other with respect, you know, bowing before they fight, shaking hands, and you just you just see it straight away, and you you feel like it's it's, it's natural to kind of uh, follow on. Um, and then by the time we get them here, it's just it's just completely normal. It's part of the sport. It's not part of the club identity. So it's not like we will get some from some clubs that don't have the same behaviours. It's it's part of the sport to have those behaviours. So wherever they've started their judo, chances are you know they've learned all those good habits. Um, so we're lucky in that respect. I think I don't know about football, but I'm, I can imagine in other sports there's some clubs with really good standards and really good values, and others that don't. I think in judo, generally, it's pretty good across the board. Um, yeah,
0: just respect for almost the overriding name of judo and yeah. that type of stuff, and everyone buys into that yeah. identity and whatnot.
1: Yeah, it's 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 the moral code of judo basically, and I think kids probably don't stay in the sport if they if they don't buy into it. You know, they just don't most of them do buy into it because it's just everybody around you doing it and it's a really positive environment Um, but I think yeah if a kid for whatever reason couldn't they probably wouldn't end up staying in the sport Um, so
0: obviously you've alluded to there the kind of pathway for a young judo player Um, can you elaborate on that in terms of how they go from just starting out first ever session to then coming into like a performance environment and selection for possible national camps or that type of stuff
1: yeah, definitely. So I'd say there is quite a clear, there's a, there's a struck, there's a clear structure in place in terms of the network of, you know, there's school judo clubs where you start your judo career, which are very much about fun, you know, kind of just learning judo techniques, not in most schools, you wouldn't actually fight or compete, um, but you would learn techniques, you would learn that kind of moral code. I um, mean, then you have your clubs, where you'd start to actually compete a little bit more and learn more of the sport of judo, the competitive sport of judo. And then there's things like full-time training centers and then the national center but even though that network and structure exists there isn't necessarily a clear pathway that links it all together. I think it it naturally happens but it isn't set in stone like a football academy where you know you have scouts and you pick up kids and then there's a they come to an academy and then there's a a cut-off point and then the next you know it's not it doesn't work like that probably partly because we don't have as many kids doing judo Um, so We can't be as kind of, we don't, our aim is to to retain kids in the sport as long as possible and work with whoever we've got because we don't have enough kids to necessarily pick the best ones. Um, We have people that end up as national level players that aren't necessarily talented judo players at all and they've just sort of stuck in the sport long enough and and worked hard enough to get to a level. So. There's not so much like a selection process at the regional level and then a national level in that way. Um, for example, in Bath, um, most people at a reasonable level have the opportunity to come in as a full athlete. They don't have to have gotten the national team to to get in, to get a foot in the door. Obviously, once they're in, they have to sort of meet a certain standard mainly on behaviors um, to stay in stay in the system. Um, but it's not as kind of results-based as, as you might think um, on the surface. But basically um, if I was so think of a kid as the example and um, the, the, the typical pathway which again like I said is not necessarily set in stone would be they they might try judo in their school because normally it's a judo player that's competing at a national level that's trying to fund their competitive career might start a school's judo business as their way to fund themselves so that so I did that a lot of people do that so that person's going out to schools um, teaching judo to kids as a way to bring in and, you know, share the sport, but bring in a bit of income for their their own competitions. This kid tries judo, likes it, and then hopefully that, that player then signposts them to a club where they can take it a little bit further. Um, and and then it's all kind of hopefully they go to the right club because there's such a variation in terms of the level of clubs and how competitive they are as well. So And also there's a there can be a bit of a, um, a culture around not once a kid's in your club, you want to keep that kid in your club. So some kids might be unlucky that they just might end up going to the, the club that doesn't ever let them go on in the pathway. But hopefully that kid gets into the right club um, and they get exposed to the right training and the right competitions. Um, and then from there, um, they don't have to necessarily make it to regional level first, they can, they can go straight into national level competition if they're good enough. And then, if they get a medal at the, the national championships, then they could become part of the British team. So they'll get invited. Um, this, this typically probably be kind of the first opportunity. Would be well, there's home. I guess there's home nations before that. So say this kid um, competes on a national level, does or doesn't get a medal, but they might then get invited to the home nations program. So that would be English, Welsh, Scottish, obviously. Um, And as part of that program, there's five squad trainings per year. They'll get invited to those. Um, If they perform, show the right behaviors, they'll get selected for a few competitions. But at this stage, they'll still have to fund a lot of it themselves. Um, So you're dependent on parents and things supporting the journey as well. So, say this kid's got support from their parents, they get a little bit of support to go on these tournaments, they start doing well. And um, then they could potentially make it onto what's called um, now called the EDS program, which is Elite Development Squad, which is a GB program. So it's from the home nations to the GB program. And that's a sort of junior age band program um, where they would start to get a little bit more invested into them. Um, so at this point, they'd still be probably either in their club environment but they might have gone on to say university and be based somewhere like Bath and um, so this they're training potentially full-time but maybe some of them still in their club environment um, if they perform in those tournaments um, to a good enough degree they could then get invited to be part of the uh, British full-time setup which is in Wolverhampton so that's kind of where British judo want to try to in all of their talented players and base them in one place Um, so it's a very centralized system once they're in that system yeah they're kind of on the pathway i guess they'll start to get a lot more support in terms of funding and you know support services and more selections Um, and that kind of that will continue as long as they keep delivering through to their senior career but a lot of them don't necessarily go through that pathway because that's a very limited number and so of just at that EDS phase kind of junior level sort of 18 to 20 a lot of them will um, either be based in their clubs but then might come to somewhere like Bath or there's full-time centre in Camberley as well and um, this Scottish judo I've got um, one in, in Ratho near Edinburgh and they might actually stay there for the rest of their career um, so either because they haven't quite made it into that British centralized group of players or they've chosen not necessarily to be based there so they there's still a pathway that that person can can get to Olympic level based in their own full-time center they just the level of support from GB judo would get would be quite different and um, so we have players here for example still trying to get to that level or at that level but because they're not based in that centralized system um, it means they have to self-fund a lot more some of them have ended up Sort of transfer in nations to fight for different countries and um, so the two um, Fletchers for example i mentioned they used to fight for GB but because they wanted to stay based in Bath um, they've moved to fight for Ireland um, so they can still get supported and do that so yeah very long-winded answer sorry i know i've talked for a long time but basically yeah there's the school judo and there's club judo and then there's kind of lots of competitions around the country which peak at kind of national level competitions do well in the national competitions um, get onto the sort of home nation program do well on that get onto the gb program um, and then hopefully stay on that so yeah that's the shortened version <laughs> so it sounds like quite a,
0: like probably the environment that people are in is quite a big thing for how they develop yeah um, in terms of the younger age groups they obviously if you get the right coaches get drilled in the right way or that type of stuff do you think that's a reason for why some athletes stay in certain areas so you mentioned you stay in bath was it because of like the coaches you had here and the training partners you had here is that
1: yeah I think that's a big factor and I think by the time you get to so for me I felt like I was quite I was quite settled I'd had a relative degree of success through being here I trained here from the age of sort of 15 um, on and off so by the time I was I think it was where I was 20 when was st- I was starting to get pulled to, to join this. It wasn't Wolverhampton at the time, but it was another another centralised system. I felt like I'd already been here for, you know, I've been here for five years, I'd had success and I believed in what I was doing here. So it was quite late, in my opinion, to change and move. Um, looking back, it probably wasn't that late, but at the time it feels like that. Um, and I think it's mainly based on coaching is a big thing, but also a big thing in judo is partners. Um, so we're very much a partner-based sport. You can't train and be good on your own. Like, I know that sounds obvious, but we the, the main stimulus and the main improvement we get is from fighting, so fighting other partners. If, and if you're in an environment with good partners for you, even if there's another environment where you will get more support and more funding, and maybe there's more coaches and more you know other things that are better, I think partners is such a big thing. Um, So for me, I had really good training partners um, in terms of dedication, but also level. Um, And that was a big thing for me. And then coaching as well, because coaching is is what's got me to that point. So um, it's definitely a big thing.
0: So how does it work? Obviously, when you're in training partners, you you all have your own weight categories and stuff as well. Assuming you probably need to fight people similar weight class to you. Yeah. But obviously, you, you then, I guess if you're both of a good level kind of competing against yeah, one yeah. another to then progress or selection or that type of stuff so how does that dynamic work yeah f- It's f- coming from like a team sport that's, I'd find that really hard to yeah, go against yeah. the same person day after day after day and yeah. then not be any clashes or
1: it's a unique part of judo I'd say and um, not just within the club environment but also on a world scale so we're a funny sport in that we will do a competition so for example the Paris Grand Slam I talked about earlier and um, big competition really important everyone is there to try and win Olympic qualification points to go to the Olympic Games Is one of the biggest and most important things that they'll do to get to the Olympic Games after that tournament on Monday so they fought on Sunday on Monday there's a training camp and everybody fights and trains together it's really really unique and quite a cool part of the sport so it's like imagine you got all the best like players from Southampton and, you know, different Liverpool and all these teams and they have a match and then they they train together That's the next day. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's really, really unique. Um but it's it's such a part of the sport that it doesn't feel odd to us at all. Um and it's I guess it's a battle of like strategy in terms of who can use it the best to their advantage. Um so you go to those training camps, fight your rivals um and try and try things, experiment with new strategies, take information from the fight I'm sure they're trying to do exactly the same thing to you so it's great we enjoy training together there's a really good camaraderie around um with your rivals and teammates and even if you're fighting for the same spot or fighting against that person for qualification um you there tends to be pretty good camaraderie and friendship um i think because partly the sport's just a tough sport and not not a glamorous sport in terms of uh, the prize money and all that stuff so there's that sense that everyone's in it together um, but yeah in the club environment it's it's probably a little bit harder in the club environment um, when you can comp- the hardest thing is when you compete against each other in competition um, so training doesn't from my own experience and from what I've seen as a coach normally isn't an issue so we'll have players the same weight categories fighting for the same spots training together and I think because the sport isn't huge in terms of numbers, they're normally grateful to have a good partner to train with. Um, but when they fight in competition against each other, which does happen at club within the same club competing in competition, that's a really odd dynamic and um, that's a really high pressure fight, I think, because you know you're going to go back to the club environment and one of you's won and one of you's lost. So that, that sort of status that, that comes back with you is a big thing. Um, so that's that's the most challenging ones, I think. Um, Did
0: you have that at all in your career here or not?
1: Yes, uh, let me think. Team Bath, yes, a little bit, but not as much as others because I was the only, for most of the time, I was the only person in my weight category. And there's a lot of people category below me or category above so great training partners but not head-to-head in terms of competition and the times where there was people in the same category as me there's quite a big difference in terms of the stage of our career and the level we're competing at that time so it wasn't such a big thing for me but for other other people it was yeah the weight category below we had two guys that were both sort of international level that would compete against each other quite regularly and that was always fun when they come back to training <laughs> afterwards <laughs> but, um, They probably feel bad enough and then everyone's given yeah so. exactly exactly. people tend to be quite sensitive around yeah. it um, but yeah no, I did have it at the, um, the funny one at the Commonwealth Games um, when so competing for England which usually we compete for GB but obviously Commonwealth Games compete for England um, We I shared a room with the guy that I was the other England fighter in my category and then we fought in the final and he won <laughs> and then we had to stay in the, in the commonwealth village for another week together afterwards um, in the same room so that was but that was okay it was fine like we were yeah i, mean, I don't know if it would have been different if i'd won but it was okay but um, yeah it's it's i guess it's character building part of the sport you have to deal with it Um yeah take out the ego side of it and keep it keep it on the mat as much as you can which some people are better at than others i guess
0: and so, would you, during these camps, or like you said, just after Paris Worlds and stuff, would you teach each other techniques that maybe, yeah, it's say for example, you're you're going against someone that you knocked out in the semi-final, for example, with a particular technique. Yeah, yeah. And Like, how did you catch me? Yeah, that, yeah. Is that something that you would do, do that knowledge share, or
1: I think it's bits and pieces. Probably not to that much of an extent. I think if you've got an advantage, you want you'd want to keep it. And if you felt like that was the key advantage as well over that person you probably wouldn't want to share it but in general you would share a lot Um, but it, it, it depends on how close things are in the situation I think as a group now for example these guys we do sessions we do normally 30 minutes coach led and then 30 minutes player led where they work on their own stuff and they do teach each other stuff all the time um, and there's things that they are in tune to that we as coaches wouldn't be as in tune to because we're not in the thick of the sport as much There's other things that we would see that they wouldn't see because we have that overview so it's really good for them to teach each other and um, the some of the nuances of different techniques um whether that's they, something that's
0: always taken place
1: that's more so now that
0: as in with them taking ownership of part of the session or Learning,
1: yes, but it's happening more now, I would say. Um, so when I was training here before the three years that I was away, we did a little bits and pieces of that, and I think the time that I was away, that changed quite a lot. Um, for whatever reason, Um so Adam came in as an assistant coach, so maybe he was part of that change. Um, and when I by the time I came back as a coach, I was told, you know, this is kind of how we do it now, which I think is great. So I really bought into that, and it's something that. I think we will continue with um, so yeah we did bits and pieces of it before and i think most clubs will do bits and pieces of it um, but it's something that we do yeah we do it regularly now i'd say te- not not with a sparring session but with a technical session pretty much every session we'll do it um, and it's really i think it's been really really effective i think the, the players like it as well because when you're training full time even though you're training twice a day it's surprising how little time you get to work on the things you want to work on if it's coach led all the time because we're trying to coach 30 people who are all at different levels different styles of judo complete they might have completely different interpretation of the sport of judo so as a coach it's so hard to run a session which and we've only got you know two coaches so we can't split the group up into lots of different groups so you feel like some of the stuff you do you it's not that it's not relevant it's relevant but this is what I want to work on I'm not getting a chance to work on it. Like, When can I have time to work on this? So I think given them that time, they really appreciate it.
0: And um, do you know, as a player, do you go, I know that I need to work on yeah. this area? As in, is that a personal thing where you work that out or is that something that coach says Do you, you struggle in this area?
1: It's a, it's a bit of both. It's, I think it's a spectrum depending on the player. Um, I think some players, not, uh, there's probably a trend towards the more elite ones, but not necessarily. Some might be young and very sort of self-aware but some have a very sort of acute awareness of what they need to work on others really have no idea and they just get on the mat and fight and they have other strengths in other areas where you know maybe their strength is that they're not you know they're not scared to just fight anyone but they don't think about their judo as much so it depends on the person and um, a lot of the times it's us just asking the right questions because um, if it comes from them it tends to be a bit more powerful um, but yeah there's definitely other players where we need to sort of hint a lot more strongly about what we think, um, but it depends, depends on the player And um, We have a couple guys now um, that yeah, we, we don't really need to say much to at all um, a lot of it will just be reinforcement or encouragement um, because they're just really good in terms of knowing what they need to work on One thing that I find really helps is not to tell them what I think they need to work on but to sit down with them, watch their fights, discuss it together um, and give my opinion on the fight so look at the gaps together from that they'll often come away with a different perspective of what they think they need to work on but it still might come from them um, but based just on that conversation yeah. It's interesting how
0: you can give like, athletes that level of ownership over mm, their yeah. individual performance plans obviously I, I work quite a lot with younger age groups and I've, I, a few years ago I was working with the older ones tried to give them that thing of going listen we've got footballs here we've got mm-hmm. poles here we've got things. thing these are the types of sessions you can do but I guess at the time the culture wasn't right for them to go out and stay extra to do bits yeah, that they wanted yeah. to work on particularly when it's cold and windy yeah, outside yeah, yeah. and stuff as well but that must be powerful in terms of giving them the ownership to go actually going to work on
1: I think so I mean I think I think like you alluded to it's a lot of it probably the age band that we're working with because mm-hmm. um, you're working with mostly a lot of younger kids yeah, younger <laughs> so we probably wouldn't do that as much with that age band um, some we might do a little bit but in general it's we, we hopefully by the time they've gone through that system we're not having to teach them judo anymore because of this age band we try to give them a bit more Um, but there's a big like I said there's a big range within that Um, so the way I would normally run a session a typical session which there isn't really such a thing but the closest thing to a typical session is I might kind of do some games around a principle that I want them to think about um, and then so a few what type of principle? So it might be a principle. We did some stuff on, um, a lot of stuff on how you uh, use your body weight to move your partner. So how you kind of, imagine two people stood up, gripping hold of each other. So holding each other's collars. If you just pull with your arms and try and pull that person towards you, you're probably going to have some success. If they start leaning back with all their weight, it's going to be a bit more difficult. So it's a combination of that pull and then you might lean back as well. And kind of that gives you extra power into that pull. But obviously you're not just trying to pull, you're trying to move sideways, you're trying to circle, you're trying to push. So we did a a big block on this recently, kind of how you use your body weight and keep tension between you and your partner so that wherever you move, you're having an impact on where they move. So we did games with like, you know, belts around each other's waist and you're linked together by a belt. And we did stuff where you're not allowed to grip them and they can grip you so you can't pull with your arms and you have to lean. Um, So silly fun games like that where they will start to use their body more because they have to to win that game and then I might explain, okay look this is why it's working because you're using your body more, because you're doing this Um, and then maybe I'd give them a few examples of how they can then apply that to their judo and you know pull your partner in order to set up this attack or to get this reaction to throw them the other direction Um, and then after we've done a few of those examples and maybe a few more specific drills then it's kind of their free time so they've got that sort of inspiration or feeling or orientation of the session and they kind of understood that principle and they have started to demonstrate it and now it's like them to apply it to their judo so we would still as coaches kind of go around and pick up on things or observe or ask questions but it's them trying to bring it into their judo and which and I guess probably a big part of it is because they've all got different judo so they, we have to give them that time to then apply it to their judo um, we can't or it's sometimes difficult to structure a session so that with it, if you don't give them that freedom how are you going to apply it to all of their judo um, so yeah it, it works well I've, I've found that has worked well um, i think for certain principles it, they lend themselves to that structure better for other things is a bit more difficult um, for example a big thing in judo is uh, grip fighting so kind of imagine to execute a throw, you've got to get your hands in a certain place on the partner's kit, it gives you enough control and enough leverage to execute a throw. That person knows you're trying to do that, knows exactly where you want hands, they've got a strategy for where they want to put their hands on your kit. So you're trying to do that to them without them doing that to you and it's you know, it's, the grip fight is a huge part of the fight um, and that side of it there are things we need to teach them like patterns and, and tricks and setups that we need to teach them um, and then so that might be more challenging to do in a sort of principle games based way so it depends on what we're trying to teach um, but yeah as much as possible I try and try and give them that space um, and then when I'm walking around the mat <laughs> there's some of them that I can just leave and there's others that I do need to be with like the whole time sort of why are you doing that why aren't you doing this like what happens if you do this Um, so yeah very individual and
0: so is a lot of your work with them initially game based stuff where you try and make it like a fun yeah yeah
1: Yeah, even even though they're at a kind of more advanced age definitely definitely Um, they train all the time they're they're tired a lot of the time so if you can make it fun I think it's I don't see any issue with games making it fun Um, it was a little bit different with with Jürgen our old coach <laughs> so he was more sort of different mentality around training should be very focused and should be very quiet and very sort of you know uh, just a different atmosphere um, but you know we have different approach um, um, I think the players appreciate it and um, they switch on more they're a bit more engaged and I think if you you can make games really specific and you can constrain a game to make it develop a skill we're not just playing games with them to make it fun we're not just trying to make them happy and have a great time we're we're doing it in a way which is this is what we're trying to develop Um, so yeah it's fun but it's it's for a reason as well and then when they're constraints based
0: coaching if you like and there's something that's coming into football more and more um, in terms of when we're doing games with the kids trying to put constraints on the way to get a certain outcome would you put then constrain when they go into like their own individual 1v1 work or would you kind of let them spar normally.
1: Bits and pieces and um, so we constrain the spars quite a lot and um, so but we not I would say there's probably depending on the phase we're going through and um, if we're going into a competition phase you know they're just about to compete we wouldn't necessarily constrain things as much but then we might as well it's say if, if a player has a real specific weakness on you know the big thing in judo is how you control your partner's sleeve imagine with two right-handed players we both want to put the right hand on the collar and that's how we throw from. So you're trying to control my sleeve and I'm trying to control your sleeve. So, really, so the sleeve battle is like a big thing in judo. So if somebody struggles with that, we might do sparring, we call it randori, um, where they start with their own sleeve pinned and they have to break that off first. You know, So we might constrain it, but then the rest of the spar is still open. But then if they don't have that, generally the nearer to competition, the more open and general the spa would be. That would be like a normal, it's close to a fight. We're not trying to manipulate it too much. Um, But if we're in a a tactical, technical specific phase, we're trying to develop something, then yeah, we would constrain the SPARs and we might say, you can only attack with your feet, you can only um, attack in a certain direction, or um, one person has to close the space and get in close, the other person has to keep distance, so we we do play with that stuff a lot, Um, but we also think personally think that we have to leave enough room for just open, normal sparring as well. Um, But then within a technical session, again, it's a mixture of certain things. We'd let them just do their own technical stuff. But then other things like the example I gave earlier, we give an orientation to the session and then the technical work has to be linked to that orientation. Um, So it's a real mix and match.
0: I'm guessing if you're working on a a specific principle, and then you're asking them to spar is there always a willingness for them to try and give it a go because yeah. I'd imagine that sometimes if people go not this not an area of weakness I think most people if it's an area of weakness they'll give it a go because it needs to improve if it's something in the middle of the road they go actually I wouldn't use this technique because yeah, I'll yeah. do this one instead they may be more inclined to kind of go towards that other technique that they'd use because they don't know it so yeah yeah is there a willingness from most people to give those techniques a go or do you get some athletes to go actually um
1: yeah yeah we do get that definitely we definitely get that and then i think in that situation it, it it's on us to ensure i mean sometimes we just either we get it wrong or we can't might just not be relevant it might genuinely not be relevant to that athlete so fair enough you know we, we might have just done a session where we've got hopefully 90% of the people it's relevant and they're just by the nature of it there might be a few that it's not but without if that's not the case and we just haven't got the buy-in I think it's on us to kind of explain why we're doing it and we try to do that as much as we can um, if you go as a player and it's a game and you just don't get why it links and why are playing games this isn't you know so it's on us to make sure there's an understanding and I think that happens off the mat as much as on the mat so those conversations we have with the players around the development of their judo what they think their weaknesses are and you know how we can target that with a specific thing that we're doing or constraints based activity we're doing why we're doing that so it's it's our job to make sure they understand i think and generally if they do they they buy into it and i think the ones that buy into it we see we see them develop um, so far, so far, so
0: good. So, so you mentioned kind of about the differences between maybe when you're going through a development phase to a competition phase. Can you talk through, this is quite an open-ended thing, yeah, but sure. what like an entire year for a judo player looks like in terms of how many competitions they do, big ones to yeah. trying to gain in points or anything like that. And then how your training is then catered to those competitions and sure. kind of what those cycles look like.
1: Sure. So, it's very different depending on the level they're at um but we try to match them up in terms of timing the year so that we can as much as possible sort of keep them on the same program wherever they, wherever they are so if you're a, a top international player and um, for example now is right in the thick of the olympic qualification period there's a ranking list a world ranking list you every tournament of a certain level that you win fights at or win medals at you get points at the end of two years of qualification top uh, 18 people Um, in that ranking list, in the world, in each weight category qualify for the Olympics. So there's 40 competitions a year it's insane how many tournaments there are because one tournament as well is not just one fight it's six seven fights Uh, in in a country 10 hours away flying and then another the next week it's somewhere else six hours away. So that is really intense Um, and the better they do the less they have to compete because Top, across those two years in each year the top six results that you get count so if I go back to my Olympic qualification um, I didn't get I would go to a tournament, not get the medal I wanted and I'd have to do the next one and I have to do the next one and it would just carry on like that so you very easily fall into the cycle of competing every weekend and um, whereas ideally you pick up a medal you can have a break and you can prepare for the next block so yeah that level it can be every weekend we try to avoid that as much as possible Um, and we try to split the year into kind of uh, three blocks times two. So we'd have like a general prep phase, competition prep phase and then a competition phase and we do that sort of twice in the year maybe three times if we have to Um, and the length of those phases would change depending on the calendar and what how the how the athlete does really Um, but the big ones that they'd be aiming for would be Sort of continental championships which would normally be around May, April May time and then world championships around September time obviously with that being Olympic year it's slightly different so Olympics in sort of July um, so we would try to phase the training around to the periods they have to be com- the competition periods around the key qualification events we want them to do well in so for example Paris which was in middle of February was right in this middle of that competition block and then we would kind of line a few tournaments up in that block. Um, So there's Paris then they'd fight Dusseldorf which was the week after, two weeks later um, Morocco which is I think this weekend um, and then maybe one more tournament and that would be that block. More development athletes their season looks really different depending on it depends where they are so if they're top end junior they would have a similar year in terms of a European Championships and the World Championships at slightly different slightly later in the year but we could try and still line up things similar to how we would with the senior athletes. Um, But there's only a few that we have, firstly on that Olympic end, and then also on that sort of Junior Europeans world, the the vast majority just below that. Um, So they are trying to break into the British team to get considered for things like Junior Europeans and Junior Worlds. So for them, there's there's tournaments kind of all year that can potentially count towards that. Um, And what we do is we try to pick ones that fit within the phases we've already got because we try as much as possible to keep them as a group and they're all doing the same kind of blocks at the same time as each other and um, so they're sort of shared experience and just managing them is a bit easier as well. So we would look at what qualification events for those guys that could help them break into the British team fit around the same period as the competition events like Paris and Dusseldorf and those big ones. So we try to keep like phase them together as much as we can. Um, So yeah, that's that's loosely our approach, but it's it doesn't go you write it down on a piece of paper and it doesn't always work like that. Depending how the athletes do, they might get a call from GB saying you know we want you to compete here, which might completely not fit within our plan. So we have to change things on the fly. Um, But that's just yeah, that's as it as it goes.
0: And what were the differences between uh, like building up to a competition week, say if you're building the week before Paris, for example, to. development week what would those two weeks look like what are the differences between the two
1: yeah so um, I guess uh, the big one would be volume of work would be most of the time significantly less um, and the intensity would be probably higher in, in that final week before competition but that does also depend on the athlete a little bit so as an example, sparring is a big one in terms of sparring for us is a big load, big training load. It's the equivalent of our kind of sprints um, that you might measure with GPS. So we would reduce sparring in the lead up to a competition, particularly in that last week. Um, but we would do it shorter and much more intense. So even potentially above competition intensity Um, so that when they go into competition they're fresh because they haven't trained too much but they're kind of firing on all cylinders in terms of the pace of the fight and their intent in the fight whereas in a development phase we might do kind of constraints based randori or more open randori which is a bit lower intensity um, but we'd probably do a lot more of it Um, but yeah because the intensity is lower they can they can handle more of it and so development phase week, we'd have three Randoi sessions where they would do maybe six, seven, five minute rounds in each session. So it's quite a high amount in total. Whereas leading up to competition, that final week, they might do three fights on a Monday and maybe two on a Wednesday, and that would be enough. Um, But then some athletes might be different. Some athletes just might enjoy the feeling of training in the week of a tournament and might feel just, they don't enjoy that feeling of tapering too much. So we might sort of try and keep the volume a little bit higher for them but then it's again managing intensity because we can't keep the volume high but increase the intensity because they're going into a tournament so as a general rule intensity goes up volume goes down but there's there's wiggle room within that i'd say and do you do a lot of
0: support stuff around it like strength conditioning gym and all that type of stuff
1: yeah yeah so we're lucky here we have um really good support in terms of s and c so we have Guy called uh, I can't even say his last name Harry Chismich <laughs> Harry <laughs> Chismich uh, so he's like the lead S and C coach for, um, for for Team Buff and specifically Team Buff judo and then we have um, uh, basically every year we get different interns um, so we've got a, a lady called Izzy at the moment from Loughborough University who's kind of our intern for the year um, so she's really involved in the S and C side as well so we they get three typically three S&C sessions a week in the gym and then they would do sort of conditioning um, stuff either mat based or track based which tends to be managed more by the judo coaches but we would design it with the S&C coaches but yeah all the strength work is done um, in the gym with with the S&C team um, and then we have once a week a kind of prehab stability balance session on the judo mat delivered by one of the physios so as a team we work quite well together and um, we we meet and discuss the players quite regularly um, what the phase is what we're working on so that'd be the two, two judo coaches the S&C coach and intern and the physio kind of working as a unit as much as possible um, so it, work, it works really well
0: so you're looking at probably like four additional sessions in and around yeah So of training the, type stuff yeah they would
1: have um, typically three sparring sessions a week um, spaced out through the week so ours is Monday Wednesday and Thursday um, other places might do like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but we do Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. they have a technical session, um, which is not sparring at all. It's just kind of principle-based games and then it might be individual time or we might teach them something specific. They'd, we'd have them three days a week. So Tuesday, uh, Thursday, Friday, and they'd have s and in the gym Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then sort of conditioning track sessions uh, Tuesday and a Saturday usually. Um, but, and that does change a little bit depending what time of the year we're at so they they're doing twelve sessions a week and um, so it's it's quite a lot that most of them are doing so one of the big things we have is they come to us at eighteen usually, some of them have trained quite a lot, some of them have trained every day um some of them have trained twice a week, so and they all come in like all different levels, all different training histories and it doesn't mean the ones that have trained twice a week aren't as good they might be better, but they've all got very different um backgrounds and then they get put into a full-time environment. Loading. It's completely uh, yeah. different. So we've, the S&C team have done a great job this year of um, sort of put on like a freshers program they've called it. So they do t- completely different gym work than the rest of the guys for three or four months and they kind of have to graduate that program before they move on to the full-time program um, and that's been really good. Um, it's, yeah, it's been even more effective than we expected in terms of injury reduction um, just they've got the core movements nailed down now and they're able to load we look at some of the other ones we've got who didn't go through that and they still can't do basic basic movements properly and it's really challenging so that's something that we'll definitely carry on with but also we're sort of toying with the idea of how we do that in a technical way as well um, so we we teach them all together at the moment and like they're all at different levels so do we do something similar where we have a curriculum or a, a thing they have to graduate before they train with the rest of us uh, the rest of the group um, and we're just figuring out what are the things that they should, should demonstrate first how do we manage it in terms of with the amount of coaches we've got because we still want them to be integrated and part of the group um, so it's Proof of concept is there, it's just kind of how we do it with judo now, I guess, it's the challenging part.
0: Almost like football pre season, that exactly that you come back in, you add a month off or whatever it is, or a month where it's not as much loading. Yeah, and now I know that there's a lot of talk about football, you know, what the GPS is, and yeah, 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 type of running sessions, type of gym sessions, how much you load them early on mm-hmm. so they don't get severs or. Just yeah, all yeah, of yeah. Stuff.
1: because what what would you do? Because typically uh, my perception of pre-season, it's, it's like the hardest part. It's really tough. Yeah. So then how do you do that when they've gone from doing very little and then actually that's the high, highest load they might have?
0: So what we do here is, although we increase the load on them, we're sensible how hard we're asking them to work in the first couple of weeks. So weeks one and two, although they're in more, mm-hmm. we might not, we well, we don't play any games in those first couple of weeks yeah. normally and then weeks three and four you might increase the load off and then what the academy of doing is we have a week before the start of the season which they have off okay to try and allow them to thing um over christmas obviously we have a break of christmas we have um we go to a place down in devon which is like a multi-sport thing just to try and get them back, back being active again yeah um, That's and then, fun. Yeah, Is it which, a wipeout thing? Uh, no, it's uh, Oakhampton. Okay. So they've got a um, massive hotel down there. Okay. Where they've got loads of different sports like that. When we've just gone this year, they were doing pedal karting, nice. tennis, swimming, all that type of stuff. So it just allows them to get active without it being a constant load of the same yeah, yeah, of yeah. thing. Um, but I think it's a classic thing in football in terms of trying to balance the, we want to get work into them and we mm. want to be able to play games so you can work on your technical and tactical bits Yeah. but if you load them too much too early either they'll break there and then yeah. or when you get into this season October November time you break yeah, yeah. which is why obviously the calls for the winter break in the Premier League is such it's a just,
1: it's crazy the, game, the amount of games some of the teams play now yeah. when I look at it and like the, the turnaround between games it's crazy
0: three or four days yeah
1: I spent a little bit of time up in Edinburgh with Edinburgh Rugby just sort of shadowing one of the S&C coaches there and they have five, six days and just between games and seeing how frantic that is and how quick they have to turn that around and re strategize and change the load and all that all those moving parts and that's like they have pretty much consistent six days yeah I can't imagine three days two days tw- yeah didn't Liverpool have one which was 24 hours, they had two games or something. Yeah, so luck they had two teams at that yeah. one, but it's still it's crazy.
0: I know that, like, if you look at teams like Man City, probably the the biggest things of it, and Liverpool to a fair extent, is because they play in four different competitions mm-hmm. that just load in. I think last year maybe and I could be wrong. I think Manchester City played like eight games, all of which only had three or four days. Yeah, breaking the thing in a row, eight to crazy. twelve or something like that, which. Loading for players is yeah, you know, I mean, they're fortunate, they've got quite a big squad, form, yeah, so yeah, 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 but yeah, that loading thing pre season is a big one, yeah. Um, so I guess, like, obviously, when you're going into competitions and stuff, you're probably not walking around at the weight, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <big> that <laughs> you're competing at, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so I'd imagine there's weight cutting,
1: yeah, it's yeah. yeah, definitely that's part of the sport, yeah.
0: So for people that don't really understand exactly what that entails Could you explain like for you if you're going into uh, yeah. uh the paris masters whatever it was what you'd be walking around out if you don't mind yeah, sure, that, sure, and sure. then what you're competing at and what that process is to get down to the yeah, weight yeah. from and um, when you have to do
1: it that sort yeah, of stuff. yeah yeah so yeah like like everything we've talked about very individual some people don't really cut that much weight believe it or not and um, a lot yeah, and other people cut Silly amounts of weight. So weight cutting is part of most combat sports, I would say, boxing, MMA, huge in MMA, um, just culturally huge, judo, wrestling, you know, anything like that. So that is basically where you would compete at the lightest weight possible that you could get down to and still perform at some good level. So artificially bringing your weight down against your body's natural kind of the nature of where you would sit normally on a day-to-day basis just for that competition Um, so you might weigh your fighting weight for literally five minutes while you step on the scales and get weighed in every minute before that you're heavier and every minute after it you're heavier Um, and the the really broad way to look at it is you want to be as light as you can be and then compete kind of as heavy as you can be but there's obviously things around you don't want to just stuff your face and feel terrible when you step on the mat because you're bloated. And then the big one's hydration, right? Yeah, yeah. So the big strategy, I guess, typically is, and it is maybe slowly changing, but not really um, to the degree that you'd hope. And The big thing is hydration because hydration is a way that you can quickly bring your weight down and then quickly bring it back up um, and not be hopefully depleted you want to deplete yourself as late as possible so for me for an example I wasn't a big big weight cutter but I was it earlier on in my career so when I was until I was 20 or 21 I used to fight under 73 kilograms which is um, 11 stone around 11 stone eleven and a bit um, and I used to weigh typically 82 kilograms so I'd lose nine to, I mean I got up to 85 kilograms so I was two stone i'd lose for a competition at one point um and i was you know i was a youth athlete at the time really i was still only 20 um, and yeah to, to do that i would probably four weeks of like nutritionally altering my diet in terms of the eat less food maybe you know i didn't really know what i was doing at the time so i'd do all sorts of weird things but um yeah eat a bit less reduce carbs which Big debate around if that's actually the best way to do it but it sort of does help you lose weight whether or not that's good you can't really train like that but still I would reduce carbs um, and then get my weight down to maybe within about four kilos of my fighting weight this st- the start of the week of the competition so maybe on a Monday I w- I'd want to weigh around 80 uh, 78 77 78 to weigh in at 73 on like a Friday night or a Saturday morning um, and then from then on I didn't really have any I couldn't lose any body fat like I, I was you know so lean that the only way I could lose the rest of the weight was through fluid um, and at the time I was terrible I didn't know what I was doing so I would just stop drinking for the week or like drink not for the whole week but you know hardly drink anything at all that week and and just get as dehydrated as I could and get on the scales and weigh 72.99 and then drink as much as I could and eat as much as I could afterwards. Which was terrible. Not a good way to do it, and I would fight sometimes good, but often really bad as a result of it. And um, because at that, that time you had to weigh in on the morning of the competition, so you'd weigh in on a Saturday morning, fight on a Saturday at like you know you'd weigh in at seven and fight at nine or eight and fight at ten. So the time to rehydrate is like so minimal. It's a little bit better now because we weigh in like a Friday night and fight on a Saturday morning. Um, so you'd weigh in at like seven o'clock on a Friday night. And I have learned more and and got better. And so towards the end of my career, um, I was weighing 85 maybe and fighting under eighty ones. So I'd lose about four kilos. So it wasn't a lot that I had to lose. I didn't really have to adjust my diet. Um, I was fairly lean anyway. So I'd I'd just lose the last bit with hydration, but the way I would do it was much different. Um, So I would would stay hydrated and train as normal. And then the day of the weigh-in, I would just go and, and do a lot of saunas and things like that, which sounds more extreme, and it's potentially i guess it's still very risky because if you spend too long in a sauna your body temperature goes up massively you've dehydrated yourself you can't bring it back down it can be really dangerous um, but i don't think i was ever that extreme to get to that level but the, the benefit if you like or the less bad part of it is you're you're depleted for less long it's a short window of time that you're dehydrated you're doing it right at the last minute um, and then you can sort of rehydrate, and the effects are, are less, hopefully, because your body hasn't been in a depleted state for as long. So I'd do that and then weigh in at seven o'clock, and then I will just, you know, electrolytes and try and rehydrate and get into the competition the next day, um, feeling most of the time reasonably good. But I wasn't a heavy dieter, you know, that was four kilos. There's people a lot more than that, so you know, there, there's all sorts of things going on that are not particularly safe um, but that you know the good thing is international judo has recognized that they're trying to combat that as much as possible and I think it is slowly shifting um, so now we have to weigh in again on the competition day so they've moved away the in the day before which means that people can rehydrate and fight in hopefully a better state one of the side effects of that was that people felt oh great I've got 12 hours to rehydrate now so they would even lose even more and drop down categories and things like that so In order to combat that again they brought in like a day of the competition weigh-in but you have an allowance so you have to weigh in on your weight the night before and then the next day you have to be within 5% of your weight so if I'm under 81s, the next day I have to be 84.9 I think it is um, 84.1 whatever it is so it hopefully means that because you wouldn't really want to hold your weight down on the day of the competition you're gonna you're gonna weigh in and you're gonna You know eat and drink as much as you feel you want to so hopefully that means by checking that they're within five percent that is more of a ballpark figure of their natural weight and it still isn't but it's an improvement Um, and then there's a lot more around education of young athletes which is good so when I was a kid and I was I remember being you know 12 years old competitions coaches encouraging me to cut down weight at 12 years old it would not happen anymore. I mean it does still happen in very small amounts but in general that education around that is a lot better. Um, so you'd I mean, hope that that generation as they come through they've got that better education. I know from working with um, England judo at the cadet level and GB under 21 level there's a lot it's a you know there's a big push towards fighting in your natural weight. Um, we weigh them at national squad trainings but with the it used to feel like you were weighed traditionally because and that, that felt like a way and you had to show you were underweight it's different mentality now it's we want to see what your natural weight is so we can guide you to compete in the category that's best for you so it's definitely getting better and the education for coaches is better for athletes and sort of at that national level is, is definitely getting better and then once they're a senior and they're an adult you know they're, they're, it's, it's more kind of understanding around what can they do safely and it's more sort of they can make that good decision for themselves us as coaches we have athletes here we we push them to go up a weight category if we think they need to Um, we're lucky here in bath we've got like a dexa scanner and things like that so we can look at their body weight look at their body fat you know can they actually make that weight um you know 10 20 years ago that didn't exist and people were just judging by feeling so yeah
0: so obviously majority of people don't fight or don't spar mm. or anything like that. What does that actually feel like? Yeah, yeah. What does that feel <laughs> like draining yourself that much to get? Because you, particularly, I like MMA. You see it on the schedule thing, TJ Dillas sure, was a big one at the minute. Yeah, looked like he was basically dead. But I think he tried yeah. to get down to 125. Crazy. And it, I've never seen anyone alive look like that. Yeah, like.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: What does it actually feel like to just pleat your body that much yeah. and then trying to fight? And then what's the differences? When you go up a weight category in terms of, yeah, yeah, obviously yeah. you're fighting at a similar standard with that type of stuff, but slightly heavier. And yeah,
1: yeah. Stuff. you feel. Um, it, I mean, it's, it's sort of there's a bit of science to it. You can regulate things and try and do things as professionally as you can, so that you give yourself the best chance of feeling okay after you've weighed in. But there's a big element of just your body's so complex and it's pot luck how it feels. That you you sometimes feel okay, sometimes you feel. Absolutely terrible. Like you might wake up the next day and just feel like you've got no energy. You're completely drained. You feel heavy, like heavy. You know, in terms of you're not heavy, but everything feels slow and uh, lethargic. And then you've got to try and fight. You know what I mean? You can hardly even, you know, look after yourself. You've got to try and fight. So it's it's really pot luck. And um, yeah, like I said, you can manage it, but it doesn't even if you do everything right, you might still feel like that. Um, so it's really tough. And um, some people just I think some people's bodies are better built for dealing with it than others. Some people seem to be able to cut hard and sort of still be okay. Other people don't. don't, I'm sure it's it's very complex. I I can't really explain why. And then there's definitely a sort of like a mentality aspect around mental toughness and things like that. Um, Sort of, you know, there's a the old phrase is like making weight is your first fight. So it's like people treat it like that. If you can get through that, then that's the everything else is easy. Um, But the big thing for me the big message from my experience and from what i've seen as a coach of athletes normally when they go up and they fight a weight category above they do better you know this whole culture around it is it doesn't really make a lot of sense it's just because everyone's doing it it's just the thing you do so everybody is cutting but you end up fighting so you're cutting but you're fighting other people that are cutting if everyone just didn't cut you would fight the same people most of the time <laughs> yeah. just in a weight category above and from my own experiences, when I was cutting 73s, I felt you feel like you have to do it because this is where you've had success, and this is where I'm going to be stronger because I'm bigger. But the reality is, obviously, you've cut, so you're not necessarily you know, you might be have a bit of an advantage, but you're also depleted. So whatever advantage you think might not be expected. And when I moved up to 81s, I, I, I did so much better, like almost instantly. And you feel like what was what was the fear? Like why was I scared of that? So generally, it's, it, most of the time it seems to be better to go up and just feel good and feel like you haven't had to kill yourself to make your weight. Times when you might still choose to go down might be where there could be a specific opponent that you, you can't get past in the weight category above. So this is where it might be, for example, Olympic selection. If it's GB and there's some absolute you know superstar in the category that actually is your natural weight, And you just know you're not going to get past that person that might be a factor that would make you cut down and maybe there's some argument there that it makes sense in terms of for your career Um, but in general from what i've seen there's like a losing a bit of weight is one thing but extreme dieting it, it, it doesn't seem to be to make sense a lot of the time when that person goes up often they do better
0: and then you said earlier that you fight seven or eight times over yeah, yeah. A day or a weekend?
1: over a day so all all happens in one day um, so the people that have cut a lot it depends like sometimes they'll feel it later on but and as a general rule because the I think if it was a because the weigh-in is quite close to the competition they're still kind of recovering and hydrating through the next day so if you know somebody's cut really hard you kind of want that person in the first or second round if you fight them later on they've kind of They've, they've drank more they've rehydrated they're heavier they're feeling better and they kind of grow as the day goes on so those people better to get them early on um, and can you see it can you see them walking around the place going oh, yeah, I yeah. know you've had a yeah yeah definitely definitely sometimes you see, I mean especially when they get on the mat you see it in their, when they when they fight you see them how much how fatigued they get so quick how quickly they tire um, and they just look like they've got no real like, like sharpness or pop in what they're doing exactly um I mean, I'm sure there's probably an argument that you would maybe fatigue more, you know, your endurance would go down as the day goes on. But from what I've seen, it seems to be yeah. the first couple of rounds, they really struggle. And then if they can sort of get through those, that's how I used to feel, if I could get through those and I could keep hydrating and as the day went on, you'd kind of feel okay as the day further through the day. Um, So yeah, if I'm coaching somebody and I know they're fighting somebody who's cut a lot of weight, I'll just like, just keep the pace high drag them into the later stage of the fight like make it a really physical fight because you know they're gonna they're gonna come out hard and try and get it over and done with and then they're gonna fatigue massively
0: so and then so obviously you're fighting seven or eight times in a day how much time do you look at who your opponents could be when do you find out what your road to whatever might be and do do regions have styles of how they fight or is it each individual is relatively different?
1: Yeah, um, good question. So that's, a, that's, for me personally, I would, I changed a bit towards the end of my career, but for most of my career, I, I like to plan the day quite a lot. So I'd look the day before the draw would be made. So they they would they would make the knockout sheet for a competition the day before you fight, or two days before if you're fighting on Sunday, because the competition is split over two days. So lightweights on the Saturday, heavy weights on the Sunday. And normally that the draws would be done on Friday and um, so I would look at it on Friday night as soon as I could because I like to plan my strategy against my opponents and kind of if I didn't know them for example you know look them up on YouTube find a few videos and plan what I'm going to do and I would look fairly through the competition and um, I didn't suffer from kind of doubt of oh I'm going to meet this person in the quarterfinal and, and that's a, a fight I won't win you know I would be confident to be think I would go through the rounds when I got older and that sort of bulletproof confidence wasn't as you know you, you just get older and you start having more doubts and whatever's probably normal I wouldn't do it as much um, I would normally look at the first fight and just that first fight of who I'm gonna um, face and I would do that the day before um, so I always wanted to know the day before but not necessarily look through the whole action just look at that one first fight or ask somebody to look at it and tell me other people don't like to know until the day of the competition which for me seems mad I would hate that because I would still be worrying about it and thinking because I'd like to strategize i would be thinking about that who could that opponent be and I would probably get a terrible night's sleep and all that stuff other people it's the opposite knowing who it is is what's going to keep them from getting a good night's rest so they would look on the day so they wake up in the morning get to the venue at nine o'clock they might be fighting at 10 and they're like okay I've got this guy fine let's do it so it's really individual um, yeah and then the other part of the question around styles is yeah definitely um, there's there's broad regional styles um, but that's it's still very individual so there's kind of is a Japanese style in terms of you know they're going to have quite technical judo quite good posture stand-up judo um, but there's still the techniques that each player would do might be different so um, you tend to have one or two key throws that are your big weapons um, and yeah each player would be different Whatever region they're from, and um, but the style of how they, the pace of the fight, the sort of the posture, the, you can sort of group them into styles based on Japanese versus French versus. Mm-hmm. Within that, there's there's variation, like British, for example. We don't really have a style; we're just all different, which is kind of maybe a strength because you can't really prepare for a British player. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's, and then I think maybe the sport's becoming more globalized, so that the lines are a bit more blurred, maybe now as well. Um, everyone's sort of got access to YouTube and you know everyone's learning from each other um, but yeah there's 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 styles but yeah
0: variation and then as you're going out obviously you've mentioned there that you used to plan kind of who you might have all that type of stuff obviously that could change throughout the day depends on who wins or loses yeah. if there's injury or anything like that how much time would you spend on the actual day going I've got this person so I should focus on this and this yeah. or would you just go I kind of know that they do that i'm going to focus on this area of my game
1: yeah and um, so not a lot of time it'd be it'd be like a chat with like a two minute chat with a coach normally um, and then it's kind of all about bringing it back to you bring it you know bring it back to you as the athlete so what are you, what's your strategy what's your strength what are you going to do against this person so you look at them have a conversation around what's the key thing that i need to prevent them doing to be able to impose what i want to do um, and just try to simplify as much as possible and not overthink it and you can't think about the whole fight and what if this situation happens and what if this si- It's normally around their gripping strategy so what is the key grip they need to do most of their judo from. Have that conversation, identify okay I need to make sure they never get this hand here or I need to get this sleeve or whatever it is. Once you've established that it's kind of th- that from then on it's all kind of the same patterns around you know your mental prep, your visualization, your breathing stuff, but focused on that one key thing. and um, For me, anyway, I wouldn't think about too much. So once I've identified that, I go through the same process of kind of, you know, I talk about my strengths and what those my, my key things I wanted to do, um, do my breathing to get myself to the right stage, and then remind myself of that trigger, that that strategy. Um, so yeah, not not overthinking is probably not a good thing because. Like football is so complex, there's so many variables. If you think about every single thing that could happen, it's just going to be too much.
0: So, it must, I guess, as a coach, it must be quite enjoyable for you to sit in the background and almost be able to go, Oh, his next opponents are on that mat over there. I'm going to go yeah. and watch, work out who wins. And then I can go back to him and say, You're facing this guy or this girl. They do this. Yeah. This is what you need to do to counter that. And make it like really clear and concise for them in terms of what your game plan coming up will be.
1: Yes, yeah, that's the key. key like you said, that's key thing: clear and concise, and um, really simple, really short. One one key thing, um, and that's it. Yeah, that's that's the the art of it, really, on the day of a competition, um, and then managing it and delivering it in the way that works for that player. Um, so, for some of them, you'd ask them what they think. And For some of them, they want you to tell them, "Okay, you need to do this." Um, so yeah, I, I enjoy it, and I'm still discovering that that and which players, which approach works with it with which players. Um, but yeah, it's cool. It's it's the competitive part of coaching. You know, that's you're still competing as a coach at the competition because you're still looking at the fights in that way. Um, so yeah, it's cool. And um, I'm right in
0: thinking that you went out to Japan for a year.
1: Uh, so I went. To, no, I, so there's other players. You, I've been to Japan many times, okay. many many times. Not not researcher's wrong. Yeah, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. Um, it might have been one of my teammates did go for a long time. I've been um, probably been about eight times as an athlete. And uh, the longest I went was probably seven weeks. Okay. Um, yeah, but it's like the the place you go and train if you want to have a high volume of good partners. You know, we talked about earlier how important the partners are. You come to a judo. Uh, like this is a training center so it's you know it's not just a club it's a place where people come from their clubs to train and we and even us we have maximum of 25 players on the mat at one time you go to japan you'll find dozens of dojos with uh, over 100 players on the mat you know wherever you are so the number of pay- partners is huge um, so that's where you go to get a big volume of good quality partners um, and it's a cool experience as well it's totally different culture it's the home of judo you sort of see that side of it so it's awesome experience
0: and is there any differences to what they were doing over there to what you'd experience here
1: yeah um so they don't they have a much bigger talent pool um and they've got they've their their technical level is a lot higher a lot younger so i would generally go and train there and in universities which is where the judo is really based so it's similar to bath in that they tend to tag it on with an educational institute so you would do judo through your high school and then you would go to university and that's where you would train sort of full-time and compete internationally they don't do any I mean, very little anyway um, like teaching very little technical training because by the time they get them at university they have all the tools they need so they have all the judo they've got their abcs down like from their club and their high school experience When they come to university, they just spar, all they do. So they do sparring for two to three hours a day. And they've got enough partners that they can get variation and different styles and not get bored of. I'm sure they do get a bit bored, but they don't need to do much else, really. Whereas we don't have the same level of players come through, come through the door and don't have the same number. We couldn't do sparring anyway because we don't have enough partners to do that much sparring. Everyone would get fed up of fighting the same people. Um, but we just don't have the same level. So we have to still coach and we have to still learn and be a lot more sort of, it's probably a lot more complex what we have to do to get, we have to squeeze the most we can out of the players we've got. And even if the player doesn't really have much of an aspiration to be a top player, we still have to try as much as we can to retain them in the sport because they're a good training partner for the players that do want to. So we have to try and keep everyone involved and get them to the best level they can, even if that means they're just a slightly better training partner for. The guys that are on that level and they don't have that challenge at all they, they have literally like a it's like a conveyor belt everyone's on that conveyor belt the best ones will make it off the end you know like so many of them will not be able to sustain the training the training is too hard so they won't reach the top level um, but they've got so many they know that some will come through um, so totally different just based on numbers really uh, but some of the, there's there are similarities in t- which is cool in terms of like the values that we talked about it's, you know obviously it all comes from that Japanese culture so it's still you know very respectful of uh, the dojo and the surroundings and tend to be respectful of um, you as a fellow judo player as well even though they want to like kick your ass on the map nice to have those common things wherever you go in the world for judo so. right well listen
0: i'm going to wrap it up now because i know that you need to go at one yeah. and it's about five to one oh, wow. but i really appreciate your time and <laughs> if you're up for it i'd definitely love to get you in yeah, yeah. and have a chat because i really enjoyed that
1: definitely mike i'd love to come back and good luck with the, the podcast and yeah awesome thanks for having cheers me cheers
0: to that